Toward the end of 2019, we completed Hebrews 11, the great faith chapter of the Bible. Now that we are into the new year, we will tie up the book of Hebrews, and we begin doing this today by starting in Hebrews 12. It has been said that the last three chapters of Hebrews, 11, 12, and 13, are chapters on faith, hope, and love. Whether or not this is entirely the case or not, I'll leave up to you to decide. You can read them in a, in a group and see if that pattern follows. But certainly, the writer of Hebrews in the verses we are looking at today is trying to encourage his readers toward hope, even in times of suffering. So if you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, we'll read the first four verses. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we look at these few verses this morning, I just pray that your spirit would move in this place, would move in our hearts, would plant the words of your truth deeply within our hearts, so deeply that they would continue to bloom and blossom throughout the coming year. Thank you that you have promised to be with us through the good times and through the difficult times. We know that when we look forward to 2020, it's very likely that we are going to face some very difficult things. And we just ask that we would be faithful to trusting you and the work that you have done, that we would have our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage begins with the word, therefore, which, of course, refers back to Hebrews chapter 11, at least the end of it, but probably the entire chapter. So because of what we've learned about all these great people of faith that God has listed there in Hebrews chapter 11, he says, Okay, now I've given you the stories. What does this mean for you now? Therefore. So here there's an application coming. If people of old have demonstrated faith toward God, what does this mean for you today? It says that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. A witness is a person who knows and reveals the truth by word or life. The Greek word used here is the word martus. We get our English word martyr from it, someone who clings to the truth regardless of all else. 
A martyr was a person that was so convinced of the truth that even torture or death could not persuade them to stray. Those that observe this kind of commitment cannot reasonably deny the conviction in the heart of the one being put to death. The life and the death of the sufferer is a witness of the truth. There is no biblical evidence at all that those that have gone on before, including those that are listed in Hebrews 11 as the faithful, are watching our lives to see how they run. Some people take this passage to say, well, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, um, as if they're watching us, as a witness watches. But I think that if the writer to the Hebrews wanted to say that, he would have used a, a different Greek word. Uh, there's a different word. This word witness here is different. The witness that it's describing here is someone who has done what was right before, someone who has lived in truth, and therefore are, they are an example to us as well. And in this way, their lives, their deaths, witness to us. They tell us, look, it's worth it to follow hard after God. If the writer of the Hebrews would have wanted to bring across the idea of a, of a witness in the sense of somebody watching, the word he would have used is a different word. Uh, I'll look at a couple of examples of it. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. Luke is saying, I've interviewed a bunch of people that with their eyes observed the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's, it's totally unrelated to the word witness in Hebrews. This, this word eyewitness is, interestingly enough, we get our English word autopsy from it. it. means to investigate carefully. So um, it's a different word. This word is used again in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him. We investigated. We were right there when it was happening. So the writer to the Hebrews, when describing the witnesses, doesn't use this word as someone who observes. He's using it as sort of an anchor point of truth. Their acts of faith are an accurate measuring rod against which we can measure our own faith. He goes on to say, sin holds us back. But there are also things that may not be sin. He calls them every weight that can keep us from running effectively the race God has for us. I think of Timothy right away when I was thinking of this idea of a race. He's entered into cross country and they have to run like four or five kilometers. I get tired if I have to drive four or five kilometers. My eyes start to droop. It's like, wow, this is, this is hard work. Anyway, they run that distance. And I think before they run, 
if they were to take a backpack full of rocks or lead and put it on their back and attach weights to their wrists and attach weights to their ankles, the chances of them winning or finishing is very, very slim. So they make sure that they are dressed as lightly as they can for the weather. They make sure that their shoes are comfortable and light that their shirt doesn't inhibit them from moving or the shorts that they wear are, are uh, open and free so that they are able to move easily. Our choices are not always between right and wrong, but between something that may hinder us or something else that may not. Is there a weight in your life that you must lay aside? I've become more and more convinced over the years that those that walk with the Lord, whose lives are being led by the Spirit of God, when the Word of God mentions the fact that we have to lay aside something, that there's something in our lives that we have to deal with, that those people that are sensitive to the Spirit know right away what that thing is. It instantly comes to your mind. And maybe you're thinking in here, boy, I can't think of anything I need to do better. Well, good for you. I'm, I'm so happy for you. Um, I don't actually think you exist. But that sure would be a nice way to live. But I trust that when God's word says, let us lay aside every sin and every weight, that there's something the Spirit touches in your heart and says, there it is, deal with it. And you can ignore it if you want to. But then you are going to run with a weight. So not all of our choices are between right and wrong. Sometimes it's between what's going to hinder me and what's not going to hinder me. The word here for ensnares, it talks about sin that easily ensnares us. I found that a little bit discouraging. Sin easily ensnares us. It's the only time that this word is used in the New Testament. Marcus Dodds, who was a theologian about 150 years ago, he said this about this word. It's that which characterizes all sin, the tenacity with which it clings to a man. When I think of tenacity, I instantly think of the smell of smoke that clings to clothing after having stand, stood around a campfire. You've all experienced this. We've come through the summer, and you go and you stand by the campfire for five minutes, and you go inside, and your wife looks at you. Where have you been? It, you take it with you, and it stays with you. It's tenacious. It clings with you no matter what you do. There it is. It's like, I don't smell it. Very often, the person whose clothes smell like campfire are the last to be aware of it. We're so used to it. 
It is not until they are in the presence of someone that has been breathing clean air that they are made aware of how pervasive the smell of smoke is on them. And at that point, there's only one solution. The clothes need to be washed. There is a tenacity. It hangs on, it clings, and it never gives up to the smell of smoke. There is a tenacity to sin. I can think of three stages in our relationship to sin. First stage, we practice sin. In other words, we do something that we ought not to have done. If it's not dealt with, we move to stage two. We defend sin. We begin to talk about that thing that at one point in our life we knew was wrong. We are now in defense of it. It's not so bad. As a matter of fact, it's probably good to do this thing. Then, if sin isn't dealt with at that level, we move to level three. We boast of sin. And now, you're in deep, deep trouble. It takes tremendously deep and honest reflection on our parts to see if we are in any of these stages in our relationship with sin. And if we have gotten to the point of boasting of sin, we are in deep, deep trouble. I don't know of anything but the conviction of the Spirit of God that can find us in a hole that deep and dark. What kind of things act as snares? I could list, well, I could go on and list many, many things that act as snares, but I thought, do you know what? I'm just going to go through the scriptures. I'm just going to do a quick word search for snare or ensnares and just see what kind of things the Bible lists as snares. And you can, you can look at this list and ask yourself, is this something that has ensnared me? Number one, idolatry, Exodus 23.33. That is, putting anything in the place of God in your heart. Number two, attachment to the world, Exodus 34.12. Number three, foolish speech, Proverbs 18.7. Number four, fear of man. Proverbs 29.25. Number five, a poor reputation. 1 Timothy 3.7. Number six, a desire for riches. 1 Timothy 6.9. All of these things can easily ensnare you. It's not difficult, the Bible says. The sin which easily ensnares us. We lean that direction when we are not, we're not walking closely with God. The writer goes on to say that we are going to need endurance to finish what we have begun in Jesus Christ. I almost changed the wording of that. Because what the scripture says is that Jesus Christ has begun a work in us. 
And it says, Jesus Christ has begun a work in us and he will finish the work in us. And then it goes on to say that we are going to need endurance for this. So I worded it the way I did. You can change it if you like. I think it's probably more accurate the other way. We need endurance to finish what Jesus Christ has begun and will finish in us. God has set before you a race. It's not a fair race. He never asked it. He never asked us to run a fair race because in front of some of you is a race that's half a kilometer. In front of some of you is a series of races, one kilometer and then another kilometer and another kilometer and another and another and another. In front of some of you is a race that's a hundred kilometers through the desert. And you look over at the guy that has to run half a kilometer and you think, it's not fair. Just so that you know, you're right. It's not fair. But it's just. It's not fair. But it's just. God is not asking you to look at somebody else's race because he didn't give you endurance for their race. He has given you endurance for your race. For the Christian, the race begins at the cross and ends at the grave. You must run it, and it will involve effort and commitment. Being passive never runs, much less wins, a race. Endurance is needed to run this race. Barclay speaks of endurance as that which does not mean the patience which sits down and accepts things, but the patience which masters them. It is a determination, unhurrying and yet undelaying, which goes steadily on and refuses to be deflected. That's endurance. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul pictured himself as a runner who had a race to finish, and nothing would keep Paul from finishing the race with joy. Does that passage come up? Yeah. But none of these things, says Paul, move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish the race, that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul speaks of my race. He had his race to run. We have our own. But God calls us to finish it with joy. And that only happens with endurance. The word race in these two passages, it's an interesting Greek word, and I think it's entirely appropriate for the idea of running. Agona, we get our word agony from it. Timothy was telling me one of the things that he learned in running is that when you think you've come to the end of what you can possibly run, your body kicks in and you're actually only about 40% used up. 
and you push through and we get something that's called a second wind. I haven't experienced it in years now. <laughs> but you, you get something called a second wind. And somehow, even though you've come absolutely to the end of your rope, there's a reserve there so that you don't just fall over and die. Some of you have it. <laughs> Paul says, I'm going to finish my agony with joy. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is fleeting because it depends entirely on what is happening around you. Joy is much, much deeper. Joy has meaning. Joy is peace in the midst of tears. Don't settle for happiness in your agony when there's something far higher. And that is the joy that God infuses into your life. When you think you've hit the end and there's nothing left, then God comes along and says, you're only 40% used up. Watch what I can do now. And it's not happiness. It's joy in agony. If you've lived any amount of time on this earth, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I personally have never experienced joy like I did when my sister passed away and I was watching the pain in the family around me. And so there was tears streaming and we went to the viewing and people began to sing. Christian people began to sing and we wept, but there was joy unspeakable and full of grace. Happiness is a blip on the radar compared to that. In my experience, joy in agony comes from knowing that you have completed something that was worthwhile in its undertaking. Who is our ultimate example? I don't want to have you misunderstand me. Jesus Christ isn't merely our example, but he most certainly is our example. That's not all he is, but he is that at least. Jesus Christ is our focus, our inspiration, and our example. Verse 2 begins with the words, looking unto Jesus. I really like how the New American Standard translates that. I think it gives us a better picture of what it's saying. It doesn't say looking unto Jesus. It says fixing our eyes on Jesus. We can only run the race as we look to Jesus and have our eyes locked onto him. This idea, this word used in the Greek of fixing your eyes, is it contains within it a deliberate looking away from everything else and a deliberate looking at Christ. Have you ever watched 
the 100 meter race in the Olympics or some other world championship. It's exciting. There's, there's hours of buildup and finally the 10, the eight, the eight fastest men in the world line up and they have to run a straight line for 100 meters. And as they're lining up, they put their hands down and they put their heads down and look at the start line. They haven't started yet. When the gun fires, their eyes lift to the finish line and stay on the finish line until they've blasted through it. The best runners in the world know that to be distracted by the fans or the cameras or even your fellow competitors only serves to slow you down. I often watch my kids play sports as they're involved in volleyball and basketball and other things. And I can always tell, can almost always tell, who's the athlete that hasn't got their head in the game because they can hear what the fans are saying. And they respond to the fans, hi mom, <laughs> hi dad. They're just not in it. You don't see that at the very highest levels. At the very highest levels, there's no focus but the end. Jesus is not the only the author of our faith. He is the finisher of it also. I said earlier that for the Christian, the race begins at the cross. That gun fires and we lift our eyes to the goal and ends at the grave. It is at the cross that we first encounter Jesus who died to set us free from sin. It is at the point of death that Jesus himself meets us and ushers us into his presence for the rest of eternity. I don't know if you've ever noticed this when you were reading, I thought of this going through Hebrews, when you're reading the story of Stephen, the martyr who is stoned to death. Hebrews says that once Christ accomplished his work here on earth, he ascended to heaven to sit down at the right hand of God for eternity. When Stephen is martyred and the stones are falling on him and his life is ebbing away, he sees Christ in heaven doing what? Standing at the right hand of the Father. That's one of mine. I greet him. That's one of mine. Jesus is not only the author of our faith. He is the finisher of our faith. As a writer of a novel conceives the ideas at the very beginning and begins to write them down, so Jesus conceived of our salvation from the very beginning. Jesus finishes our faith. When, at the very moment of our passing, we see the Savior, our faith is perfected and becomes sight. Faith has served its purpose in God's great plan for your life and has aided in ushering you into the presence of eternal glory and therefore comes to its perfect completion.
Jesus could look past the horror of the cross to the joy beyond it. He did not regard the cross itself as a joy. The same mentality will enable the Jewish Christians to whom this letter was written, and to you and to me, to endure. I don't know what you're facing today. Some of you in here today are facing tremendous difficulties, and yet you've, you've come, and people ask, how are you? And you say, fine, how are you? And yet, deep within you, there's some tremendous difficulty that you are trying to work your way through. In a group this size, it's just the way it is. There's at least one, and probably more than half. You have come here this morning to try to embrace something that will carry you through the week to come. For just a moment right now, just, just a very brief moment right now, I want you to look beyond what it is you face in this up upcoming week that is so tremendously difficult for you for just a moment this morning. And I want you to look to the joy that God has set before every person that has placed his or her faith in Jesus Christ. And then I want you to make that a habit. When those things weigh you down, and they do, folks, we don't live in a world where everything's happy clappy and rainbows and flowers. We live in a world where there's darkness and pain and things that overwhelm us sometimes. And we think, how can I possibly move through this thing? We can do what Jesus did. He, he could have looked at the cross and said, that's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. It's going to hurt. It's going to be horrific. But he didn't. He looked beyond the cross to the joy that was set before him. To be reunited for eternity with the Father and the Spirit. Never to suffer down here again. Jesus despised the shame. One of the most prominent elements of the torture of the cross was its extreme shame. One of the purposes the Romans had in crucifixion was not just to make that person suffer horribly physically. It was to bring them to shame. It wasn't enough to torture them to death. They had to bring them shame so that everybody that looked said, I don't want to be on that cross. Whatever I can do to avoid being on that cross, I will. It was shameful. Jesus did not welcome the shame. He despised it, it says. Very often we think of this word despise as hating or loathing something. That's what the word has come to mean in our, in our English language. But what this word really means to spies is mean, it means this, to think little or nothing of something. To think little or nothing of it. Jesus 
despised the shame. The fact that they stripped him completely and nailed him to the cross, he thought little or nothing of it because of the joy that was set before him. It's not that Jesus hated the shame. It's that he thought very little of it compared to the joy that was set before him once he victoriously endured the cross. The same word is used in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So this word despise here does not mean to hate or to loathe. No one in their right mind hates or loathes a little child. But many of us might think too little of them or not think of them at all. And Jesus is warning us against this kind of attitude. Same word that he uses, that he despised the shame. He thought little of it. Don't get me wrong. Shame is a significant trial. It's significant enough that in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So shame is one of the words it's used to describe one of the aspects of the terrors of hell. This idea of shame can be a stumbling block to many. Many of us will do just about anything for Jesus except endure shame or embarrassment. Spurgeon spoke boldly to Christians who could not bear the shame that comes from the world for following Jesus. He says this, Yet you are a coward. Yes, put it down in English, you are a coward. If anybody called you so, you would turn red in the face, and perhaps you are not a coward in reference to any other subject. What a shameful thing it is that while you are bold about everything else, you are cowardly about Jesus Christ, brave for the world and cowardly towards Christ. But shame is not the end of the story for Jesus or for us. After our shame, we too will be ushered into the presence of God. And I don't necessarily mean heaven, although that is true as well. If we identify with Christ in his sufferings and shame, if we are in Christ, then we are already in the presence of God. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll read verses 4 through 7. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It says in the past tense, he made us to sit down in the heavenly places. That is where we are positionally right now. Finally, he challenges us to consider Jesus. He says, compare your sufferings 
to the suffering of Jesus. These Jewish Christians that the writer was writing to here were discouraged because they started to experience significant social and economic persecution. The writer of Hebrews, although he in no way discounts their suffering, reminds them of the suffering of Jesus, who suffered even to the shedding of his blood. Jesus doesn't ask more of us than what he has himself experienced. He knows exactly what we are going through. And considering this should help to keep us from becoming weary and discouraged in our souls. It is one thing to become weary and discouraged in our bodies. Often we can rest our bodies and regain some sort of vigor again. I know for myself, when I get fatigued, I know exactly what to do. I take a nap or I rest. I sleep the night and then I get up and breakfast helps as well. But the writer here is exhorting us against something far, far worse. Becoming weary and discouraged in our souls. The part of us that can only find rest when we rest in Christ. Let's conclude by reading Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28 and through verse 30. Jesus speaking, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. 